Hey, good morning and happy Thursday from the Common Good Podcast. It's May 4th today. And Dan, as the regular listeners to the Common Good Podcast know, on Thursdays, you, it's a bit of a potpourri sometimes. Sometimes a little astrophysics, sometimes a little economics. economics. Yeah. Yeah. Today, um, music and community organizing is a form of democracy. Yeah. Not exactly together. We're going to talk about two different things <laughs> so today. But honestly, if maybe the solution to a broken democracy is a little more music. It's more music. Yeah. And we yeah, sort of if- breezed over the fact that, Doug, I don't know if you're aware of this, May the 4th is International Star Wars Day because May the 4th be with you has become a whole thing. And so to all who celebrate, uh, happy May the 4th to you. Oh very much uh, that that seems like something i would enjoy like when i hear it described that it's a silly pun of some obscure <laughs> reference in a wordplay it's just right there yep but i have just never i've never um may the fourth be with you to anyone so this is the, this real virgin territory for me here well welcome welcome to the cult yeah Thanks. Thanks. And do you, do you, may the fourth be with you? Like did you say to your children this morning and that sort of dad joke way? Uh, I forgot, but they reminded me yesterday that it was almost oh. may the fourth. So they're, they're ready for it. <laughs> but in uh, the mornings, I don't know what day it is or oh yeah, I'm yeah, stumbling out of the house trying to get everyone to school. Coffee hasn't kicked in. Yeah. Yeah. You're one of the slow wake up people, aren't you? Like my, my, my wife, Shelly, is that, is that way. The brain, chem, whatever chemicals make you go to sleep, which isn't melatonin. Uh, I don't mean, but you know, this combination of like how a person falls asleep is something that sleep scientists, of course, study. And some chemical washes over parts of your brain, and that's what causes you to go unconscious. And when you wake up, that chemical dissipates. So normally, like if your eyes get a little light or your ears hear a sound, your brain releases another chemical and it washes away the sleepy chemical. Yeah, and then you and then you wake up. So people that fall asleep fast, this chemical kicks right in. So if somebody struggles with something like narcolepsy or something, it's it kicks in too fast. Just and dumps a bucket of that sleep sauce on your brain. Yeah, sleep sauce. It's a great word. <laughs> uh, well, that sleep sauce for some people takes longer to burn off like a fog in the morning. Mm. You know, they have, a, they have a longer period of time. And and here's the thing about that. Like, I'm a fast sleep and fast wake up person, which has nothing to do with moral countenance or hard work <laughs> or, you know, which people attribute it to like, oh, no, I get up early and, uh, you know, I, I fall asleep fast. Like, I'm very efficient. Mm-hmm. Like, that's just literally a chemical, <laughs> how, how your body processes a, a particular chemical. And so I really feel for the people for whom the, the wake up is gradual and slow. And, and truly, they, you know, people, maybe, maybe put yourself in this category. You're like, oh, I, I don't want to be making decisions when that stuff is still lingering around in my, yeah, absolutely. my noggin. That people just shouldn't even talk to me until I'm starting my second cup of coffee. Yeah. And they say, I, and I'm totally, I'm, I'm off the, I'm off the information train here with this one, but somehow caffeine then kicks in something that I think does something to help that wash those, wash that chemical out, which we use these words like cobwebs, wipe, wipe the cobwebs away. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe that's why this, this common good podcast is so delightful uh, here in the, in the mornings. I mean, I think about our friends in California, you know, often $1.99 comment Jim, um, 
you know, yeah, still waiting for the power comment, but it's 7 a.m. 7 a.m. So Mike and the others that are in California and regularly are in the chats here, they're, they're, they're up at seven, eight in the morning. They're, they're into this, (laughs) into this thing. Yeah. I've been, I've been wordling in the mornings, uh, doing wordle. That's a good way to get the, the brain working. I think I've actually wondered, like, maybe if I did it at two in the afternoon, you know, I would have an easier time seeing the obvious. But I tell myself, no, no. When I when I wake up, I'm I'm a hundred percent. Mine's clear, ready to go. Maybe that's not. Maybe that's not true. Maybe that's a sleepy fiction. I've been telling myself. Could be. Um, well, good morning. Uh, regardless, by the way, seventy degrees and sunny in Minneapolis today. How, how's it looking there in West Michigan? It's supposed to get up to the sixties. Uh, but it's it's fooled us before. So <laughs> yeah, when it gets up to the sixties, but it's cloudy and damp and windy, and you're like, and this is sixty degrees. That can be that can be a mean mean spring. Yeah. Wherever you are, precious viewer and listener, let us know. Uh, and I send an email or something. You can send it to info at votecommongood.com if you listen on the podcast or chat in the chat spaces if you're watching this live uh, or comment. I guess just comment if you're watching on a recording. All right, Dan. Uh, so two things to talk about today. One is this music emphasis that we're going to have yeah. in the Common Good podcast, uh, which is, I think, rather exciting. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. We toyed with this idea back during the pandemic and everything was shut down and actually did, I think, one episode of Common Good Music. But we're, we're trying to bring it back and make it a, an ongoing, maybe a segment, maybe its own little thing. But we want to interview... Mm-hmm. Uh, artists and musicians and hear some of the music they're creating uh, because we think music adds goodness into the world. And so we're going to talk to a bunch of friends we have uh, that are out there making music. And uh, I think it's going to be a good time. Uh, Our first guests are coming up Monday. We're going to interview them uh, at one in the afternoon. We might go live. We might uh, record it and post it later as a segment. We'll see. Uh, but it's our friend Story in Tune. This is Ben Grace and Karen, and they are out of San Diego. Ben Grace, uh, if you're a, a viewer and listener of this show, you know his work because he composed the theme music uh, to our podcast. Yeah, those... Uh, oh, yeah. There it That's is. the work of Ben. And he's a he's a good friend of mine, great songwriter and artist. And uh, so his new project is called Story in Tune. And we're going to chat with them on Monday. And uh, they're going to perform a couple songs live for us. Uh, pretty excited about it. And we are quite interested in other people's input, too, on who you think oh, we should Melissa, hear from. Melissa loves Story in Tune. Ben and Karen are oh. amazing, she says. Well, how yeah, about glad that? you know them. Great. Well, be sure to tune in. Maybe, uh, maybe send a question to Dan uh, about that. You can include it. There inf- you go. You know, your info. Or, you know, find find a way. Info at vocalcommongood. Dan at vocalcommongood.com. And then you can say, you know, as one of our frequent listeners has a question for you and uh, viewers. So, good morning, Melissa. Hey, um, we're interested in your input on music too, because social movements, which we want common good to be, we see common goodery as a social movement for the betterment of our civilization and our planet and all really does require a soundtrack. In fact, all the social movements you can think of have included people singing, music making, mm-hmm. rhythm creating. It's it's just it is uh, always there. 
when it's not there, uh, the movement doesn't last very long. So uh, a movement of common good really does require uh, a soundtrack. You know, it doesn't need to be everyone same soundtrack, but now it's easier for people to make a version of a mixtape, right? By putting a playlist together or subscribing to a particular channel and you can find it because you really do want a sound and you want the rhythms of music. So we're looking for more people that we should turn other people onto so that they can do this and, and recruit them into some, some music goodery. And the music business is tough, you know, in this world that, that we're in. Like a lot of things, just sort of breaking through and breaking out is, is hard. There's something great about the way the social media systems that we use allow us to talk to each other and to share and to do all this. It also makes it really difficult to share music, frankly. Mm -hmm. There are all these copyright restrictions on music that's on YouTube or Facebook, Instagram places. So you, and, and, and the rules are not clear about how it works. Like, I don't know, somehow on TikTok or on Instagram, you can just add songs in, but you know, if you've got your own friend who's made music and you put it on YouTube with them there talking about it, it gets flagged as a copyright violation. So it's, it makes it hard to share music in these environments. So we're trying to work on that and figure that out, find a way for that to be more uh, useful to you so you can find the music. So bear with us as we f try this as well and figure out how, yeah. uh, how we, how we share this music, because we want you to know about these musicians. We want you to know about the music. We want you to be impacted by it. And we want to hear about the people that you, that you listen to. Yep. Yeah. And Melissa brings up a great point. People can support story in tune by Patreon. It's a great way to support and show love to these incredible artists. Uh, I am also a Patreon supporter of Story in Tune. Oh. Yeah, this is kind of the way artists have figured out that they have to survive. They have to recruit direct support for their work. It's sort of like crowdsourcing a record label because record labels aren't what they used to be mm -hmm. and don't do the things that they used to do unless you're, you know, Beyonce or Taylor Swift. But for these, you know, middle class musicians, Patreon has become this uh, really helpful platform to fill in the gaps in between touring and pick up the slack where streaming revenue is almost non-existent. Um, people used to buy music. They bought mm -hmm. albums. They bought CDs. Uh, that's basically not a thing anymore unless people are buying, buying vinyl as sort of a, you know, a niche thing. But so in lieu of that, people that want to see artists succeed are deciding, hey, I'm going to contribute five bucks a month and support your work and make sure that you can keep making music. And so, yeah, that's that's one of the ways uh, artists are making it work. And if you're unfamiliar with Patreon, it's just a processing platform and delivery platform. So sometimes a somebody who's on this Patreon platform as a, as a provider will have special things that those who support their work are able to see and listen to or download. And so you, it's a way to interact with that, with that person. So if Patreon is, seems new to you, um, that's good. You can head over there. You can look up any of these organizations and lots of people that you'd be surprised, uh, by are, are on Patreon. In fact, I was listening to some podcasts about music stuff and they were talking about music artists and these are people in the in the industry. I think they were Nashville-oriented kind of people. And one of them asked the other, hey, what percentage of bands do you think 
make their total living existence just off of their music. And they were arguing if that was between 10 or 15% mm. <laughs> that are doing it. So the others are having to do so many other things, whether it's Patreon yeah. or work other jobs or mm -hmm. uh, make music, use their musical ability to make music for other things other than the music that they're, that they, they're creating or something. So it's, it's just a, it's just a real issue. You know, there was a, a belief for a long time that the internet was going to, going to democratize um, the delivery system and it has, but it has not democratized the income streams. It right. turns out that we haven't figured out how to make, make that equal. So if they're on, if you listen to some, uh, you know, musician on Apple music or Spotify or something, you're paying a subscription and then some fraction of pennies yeah. goes to those each artist and gets sort of accumulated up until they make enough so they get a $17 check in the mail at some point. Right. You know, and so that's that's what, so when you pay your if you're paying for Spotify, just remember you're only paying Joe Rogan. He's the only one that's getting <laughs> any money from you. That's who you fund. Don't that's fool so yourself true. Yeah. into believing anyone else is he's getting a hundred million dollars a year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and everyone else gets nothing. And what's frustrating so. is it's not like these companies can't afford it. Spotify yes. is raking in money. Their CEO makes millions a year. Uh, they've got the money that they could more equally distribute. They choose not to because the market forces have allowed them to say that that doesn't have to change. And, uh, you know, bigger artists can uh, fight for a bigger slice of the pie. They get a better cut than indie artists because yeah. they have the clout to fight for it. And I have a love-hate, you know, with Spotify and Apple Music. I love that you can discover new music and mm -hmm. uh, that all sorts of music is readily available. But there's just not an easy way to then directly... yeah support an artist because like in the in if you're in one of those apps i use i use apple music and i'm listening to an apple music song i can go to the artist and see something about the artist but it's not like in three clicks on my phone or three taps on my phone i can get to their patreon channel and chip in the 12 dollars for the album i just downloaded mm -hmm. you know because i pay what i i I should know, but I don't know. Do I pay $99 a year or something for Apple Music? Maybe it seems like it's something like that, like 100 bucks a year sort of in some package thing that I have yeah. with my Apple stuff. So to my mind, I'm this is just all free music, right? Every mm -hmm. song I download, it just like I, I paid for something else and it's like a buffet, right? You, you paid to get in and then everything's free, you know? Yeah. Uh, it doesn't matter how much you put in your plate or whatever. I'm just taking taking music, and I was, sometimes I'd love to be like, "Hey, this is really great song. It's worth, you know, whatever a tip level of of money right. <laughs> uh, for it, right?" And throwing it. I mean, I, honestly, I'm glad to tip you know a person at Starbucks, but I give that person who gave me my coffee a dollar, and I give the person that gave me a song I'm going to listen to for four hours of enjoyment nothing. Yeah. <laughs> like that is just, <laughs> I don't know. That's just all the weirdness of, yep. of this world. And, and so, you know, look, we want you to meet new artists and also just, I don't know, just as people that have the ability to pay for music and listen to music. And we have devices that are worth, you know, hundreds and thousands of dollars to do this all on. Right. 
is there a way you can support some musicians? Right. Well, I hope so. Roger Flyer, good good friend of of mine and and super booster of the of the all things uh, Vote Common Good, um, is also a musician and yeah, there he is uh, getting uh, twenty five dollars uh, from from CD Baby. Yeah, uh, so CD Baby is one of these distributors that indie artists use to put their music into the world, and then they collect the revenue from all the streaming platforms and give it back to the artist. And I use them as well. <laughs> he says I got a check for twenty four forty five, twenty four dollars forty five cents for thousands and thousands of streams of music after a year. So these penny, they're literal fractions of pennies. Fractions of pennies. And that's about what it adds up to after a year. So, yeah. an, so if you think, I'll just say, just to be, you know, my opinion on this, if you think you're paying for it because you subscribe to, or you have the paid version, like, <laughs> or, or you say, I suffered through the ad, so I paid for it. Okay. You, you basically pay for the right to use the system, but it's not one to one that you listen to something they kept track and took from your $9 a month or $19 a year, some, you know, portion and, and then sent it to that person. It's, it's more complicated versions of yep. reaching minimums and all the rest. So it doesn't, there, there isn't really a democratizing way to do it other than using something like Patreon or other websites have tip jars and that kind of stuff, Yep, which look requires a lot of work, frankly, but here's what else used to require a lot of work. Buying a concert ticket from Ticketmaster. I mean, when, when when I was a kid, I used to have to go stand in line at Dayton's department store because they had a little part of Dayton's that was the then Ticketmaster, a place you could buy concert tickets. You had to go sit there for hours, wait in line, buy a concert ticket, go to the concert, buy a T-shirt, and that's how you supported the band. So that's also a lot of work, right? So... We can find it, you know, if, if it means, hey, you listen to an artist and then you find them and you go to their little Patreon if you really like them and you chip in a buck. Um, and Patreon doesn't have to be a subscription base. And there's, again, there's lots of other ones, but we just want you to be thinking about about all that um, and yeah. sharing new music with you. Hey, we, we have a mutual friend in the in the common good world named Catherine Stewart. She's an expert on many things Christian nationalist related and uh, uh, sort of authoritarian versions of of attack on democracy in the United States and around the world. So her book is, she's got a great book called Power Worshippers, and she's on our podcast. Uh, I've been on a number of times. She's part of our, our curriculum on confronting Christian nationalism. So yeah. she's really great. Also, what makes her interesting is she's had a project for like 17 years where she listens to new music every day. Oh, wow. So she has friends send her when they discover new music, they just send it to her. And she. so the genres are unbounded. <laughs> it's all <laughs> manner of things. And a commitment to just listen to something new every day. Wow. Isn't that great? I mean, I mean I, granted, great. she's- And I'm overwhelmed just thinking about it. Unbelievable, right? <laughs> unbelievable. I mean, I guess you could go onto one of these systems, Spotify or Apple Music or Amazon Music or something, and just click surprise me and get something get something new every yeah. day. But she's actually managing it and, and all of this. So oh, I think it's awesome. I think it's super great. And so um, that could be the kind of thing that you do here too. Is I don't know, once a week, once a month, you say I'm going to listen to some new music that I think is common good, common good related. So yeah, um, 
we'd love for you to do that. So I guess that does sort of bridge into our conversation point today. Uh, last week, we were able to record an interview with a person named Ruth Backstrom. Ruth wrote a book called Igniting a Bold New Democracy. Ruth uh, is somebody whose life and work is around something called dynamic facilitation technique. So uh, we'll talk more about this, but she has a PhD in education and has been a community organizer, lives in Durham, North Carolina. And she's written this book that is entitled Igniting a Bold New uh, Approach to Democracy. And the, the bold part is is important because she's, and you'll hear it in the conversation, she's kind of getting at a base idea that we should form these community groups, community groups that find a way to listen to each other, that we have a, a pattern in society of listening to some people and keeping some other people out. So she works hard to articulate what a bold new democracy could look like. Um, th there are times where it, it feels um, a little like, to me, it felt a little PhD design theory like, like how does this actually work in practice? Like what would we do after we did community uh, sessions? So then she talks about that. She yeah, says, here's places where it's been done. Here's how it happens. Here's here's how it goes. So we spend about a half an hour uh, talking about this book, and you can get all the all the real details inside of inside of her book, of course. Um, and uh, so you think we need any other in intro there to uh, to our conversation with Ruth, Dan, for this to make sense to people? No, I think that's pretty good. All right. So uh, yeah, thanks for being a part of this today, and um, thanks for being in the chat. Uh, of course, Roger Flyer and Melissa and uh, Renee Yabitz. Good to see you from Marietta, Georgia. Um, from here on out, you're going to be watching a recorded video uh, that we're playing live. So uh, you can put your comments up. They will be in the stream for other people to read. But of course, uh, Dan or Ruth or I won't be able to interact with these because these are our old selves. We're not even these people anymore. We've changed a lot <laughs> since then. And uh, But this is who we were last week when this conversation happened. Well, hey, Ruth, so good to be talking with you today. And, you know, this topic of igniting a bold new democracy, well, I got to tell you, a lot of us feel like that is a great idea. So congratulations on a great title and, uh, and an, an important notion. There are days where I feel like we wonder, uh, are we going to have any kind of a democracy at all? Oh, I know. You know, like, I know. <laughs> uh, so we will uh, we will assume that for the purpose of this conversation, and we'll jump right into what 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 a new democracy could look like. Um, we've talked already a little bit about your background that right you've of, of what you've done, but what what got you into this particular uh, interest in trying to say not only should there be a, a new kind of democracy, but what it needs to look like? How how did you start thinking about all this? Well, I mean, I started when I was young, actually. Um, I was involved in the civil rights movement uh, as a 13-year-old, actually. <laughs> and I, went, I was in Chicago, and I went downtown, and I, I joined a march. And out of the side of my eye, I noticed as we were sitting down in protest that our, the head of, the, the, head of the, uh, the protest was getting beaten up. And it kind of shocked me, you know, as a 13 year old, mm. you see the scalp yep. wound that's really bleeding and stuff. And that left a really strong impression on me that justice was a really important thing. And it was a hard, those mm. were hard fought battles and that we really need to go forward on those things. And, and part of going forward on those issues is having a strong, bold democracy. 
that really stands up for people. I mean, the biggest problem I think is that we've lost our high quality of life that we want. And we need to go back to asking for that and expecting it again. You know, your, your story of talking, thinking about this as a 13 year old during the civil rights age, that's a good reminder that look, we haven't been struggling with what our democracy should look like, who should be involved in it, who has more power than, than others. Those are perennial issues in this, in this experiment that we have of the United States democracy, right? Like it's, um, in some ways, we have a moment here that we're looking at and we're talking about today, but it sits sort of nested inside of the other major moments in our, in our time that we point to and can notice. We always struggle with it, but it does feel like that there are certain moments in the American story where that democracy has been more questioned and maybe more up for grabs as to what it would look like, who would be participating, and maybe some change could happen. To me, this feels like one of those times. Is that is that something you also yeah, sense? Yeah, I, I think so. Point? I think it's a very precarious time. We could kind of feel it in our bones, really. Mm-hmm. That there's a lot of anxiety, a lot of concern, and a lot of and so a lot of people said to me they felt really lost. In fact, that was the one thing that they complimented me on in my book is that it gave them a sense of hope again. Hmm. And I, I hope I can do that in my interview with you too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Be, because look, that, I mean, that that really matters, right? I mean, hope is this thing we we traffic in a lot of hope around here. We're a faith, hope, and love kind of people, so we traffic in hope because yeah. it's just a better option. I mean, even even if it's even if it can't win, uh, even if it's not playing a game of win, winning and losing, it just seems like a better the sort of tack and and strategy than anything like you might as well be hopeful right even if you see this even if you see the pain even if even if the the odds are against you hope hope can uh, hope can pull you through and an awful lot uh, but the, my you, hope you, you is grounded in in research and documentation of a path forward you know yes so so let's talk about that a little bit you 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 have a line where in in the book and what you're talking about that you feel like in this country we're at a racial stalemate uh talk a bit about that um there's almost no way in america to talk about democracy without talking about race because race is the context for so much of what we do it's not just a topic or an i you know one of the things we deal with it very often feels like the setting for so many of the things we talk about but what do you mean when you talk about a racial stalemate well, actually, that's a term I borrow from Obama, actually one of his speeches, where he talks about we're in this sort of zero-sum space hmm. where either the white working class can win or the African-Americans can win, but we don't have enough resources to meet the needs of both groups. Hmm. And and what I argue is that we, we don't have to think in terms of zero-sum. And my my first chapter in my book, I talk about what we did after World War II, where we invested in the veterans and 7.8 million people went to school, college for yeah. the first time. And that had a huge impact on on our democracy. It really jump-started the middle class. Before then, going to college and being able to afford a house were, were out of bounds for most people. So we have in our history the knowledge. We were the first ones to do something like that. It was a mm-hmm. radical experiment. And there were people who said, oh, you're going to turn hobo, our colleges into hobo jungles and stuff. Yeah. But we did that. And it was a, an amazing success. So we know the most important thing for a democracy is to invest in its people. 
And of course, mm -hmm. guess who got less be left behind in that investment? It was largely African-Americans. And yeah. what, what that means is it's sort of like a race where you say, okay, you guys get to go ahead for, you know, hours and hours and hours, and then we'll try and catch up with you. And, yeah. and it was such a big discrepancy that it, it's really difficult, you know, to catch up. And so we, that's where the idea of reparations really makes sense. When we ourselves did the social engineering that created this huge gap, now there's a time to come back and, and take care of those problems that we created, basically. One of the pieces of a democracy that obviously is the centerpiece is the participation of people, right? And right. one of the struggles is that we have historic non-participation of certain groups. That's an issue of race. We choose to make it an issue of age, which I am not arguing we should have children voting or something, right? But okay, we, right. we do say that there's, you know, uh, you know, people under 18 years old are out. So there's some, you know, there's some structural things that we put into, into the system. But there's also these habits, like keeping women out of representation has been a a historic practice there was right. you know it was just 110 years ago 12 years ago that women were allowed to vote and in a lot of places in the country even though they were granted that right to vote that didn't mean that all women could vote there were still places in in the country where because of race you weren't allowed to vote or because of your ethnicity you weren't allowed to become a citizen and therefore vote so women have always been left out of the the, the project in the united states that's been an ongoing problem the representation of women in elected office is a really is a really big problem. You you recognize that if we're going to have the kind of bold new democracy we need, it needs to involve a different way for women to be engaged, huh? Yes, absolutely. Um, and especially in these times, because I think this is a time where we really have to get better at we have to develop better collaborative skills of coming together and listening to each other and compromising the kinds of things that we used to be much better at, hmm. we have to vitalize. In fact, the last chapter of my book, I talk about the need for a spiritual renaissance. Hmm. And I think women have a real intuitive sense of how to compromise. I mean, they have to deal with these unruly children that are growing up that they have to kind of shepherd into the future. And mm -hmm. so, it's that emotional intelligence that we really need to cultivate and the ability to collaborate. And that's kind of the centerpiece of my book is that we need to have new conversations that are guided by what I call our collective intelligence. And now when I say collective intelligence, I mean that a group can function really effectively. We talk about an individual working mm -hmm. The zone. Well, groups can have a zone too, where they mm. listen to each other really carefully and they can follow each other and they can kind of weave the concerns of various people into the conversation mm. and come up with solutions that are really palatable to a large number of people. And this is just a theory. This is actually a practice that's been going on in a state in Austria where they've adapted a technique called dynamic facilitation. And in that, they listen carefully to everybody and their concerns are brought into the picture. And then they come together thinking like a group and they, mm. they sort of go beyond their own individual ego of what their particular point of uh. view was, was when they came into the room and start thinking like, well, the concerns of all the people that come into the room. So to give you an example, they have what are called citizens councils and they mm. convened a citizen council 
on immigration, which is a hot topic in Austria. And they were talking about what should we do with all the immigrants who are coming in. And the way these facilitations happen is they have all the information that that they need to make a decision on what to do to address the issue. So they knew how many immigrants were coming in and they were sort of surprised that the government had not been more transparent with them. And they said, first thing they said is you have to be more transparent with us about how many people are coming in. And then somebody said, we have to see the people beyond the numbers. Mm-hmm. And that stirred everybody's compassion. And they started ways that could be helpful to the immigrants. But then there was one outlier who said, well, I don't think we should be giving them jobs and concerned about them. And everyone was kind of shake, taken back. But the way in dynamic facilitation, what happens is you go deeper to find out what's underneath what someone says. And so he said, well, my niece has been looking for a job for several years and can't find one. And so then they said, well, let's open it up. And the people who don't have jobs can also come to these job fairs that we're going to create for the immigrants. And so that was the compromise that they came up with. And at the end, they felt really good that they'd come up with a compromise. They'd they'd Hmm. come to this together, reach this place of solidarity. So this process of using citizens' councils to get the voice of the people into government has been used since 2005 in Austria. And then in 2015, in the state of this particular state in Austria, actually, Bullardrop. And then in 2015, it became institutionalized because it had been so successful. So that every year they call a citizens' council to mm. get the voice of the people into the conversation. One of the features of American democracy is this weird uh, counter pressure. You, you hear people say it a lot. They're like, look, uh, the United States is not a pure democracy, right? Like maybe oh, right. on an occasional ballot initiative we do. They say things, and it's true. The United States is a representative form of government, meaning right. you the democracy is used to select representatives. And then those people function to create laws, listen to people, and they become our state representatives, county, city, federal representatives. So that's the, that's the thing we've chosen. And, and that's both a feature and a flaw. It seems to me, I'm interested in your thoughts on this because the kinds of things that you're describing are what we know work, right? When you, Right. We, we know they work in family systems. We know they work in businesses. We know they work in, in interpersonal <laughs> conversations. Uh, we, we know they work in, in co- any collaborative venture you find yourself in. But that's not what a lot of people want their government to do, right? It's like, no, what we want are for our representatives to go and hold firm and strong to the opinions that we think matter and to stand up against those people who have different opinions. So we need to send you there to stand firm and stick to your convictions. That's the opposite tendency of a collaborative facilitated conversation of finding the thing that you didn't know before you came in the room. So what do we do? What do we do about this when the great championing narrative of people with a representative is, um, did you, uh, did you ever buckle your knee? Did you ever change your mind? You know, the last thing a politician wants to do is say, Hey, let me tell you about the three ways I've changed my thinking since I was elected two years ago. You know, that would be the end of your campaign. So what do we do about this? How do we, knowing what works versus what we do as a representative form of democracy that holds up to a 
Yeah. Yeah. So this is where the conversation could start. Like, mm-hmm. we know, we all feel that our democracy is not representing us anymore. I mean, what we, we're experiencing in a way is this sort of divide and conquer. We're mm-hmm. fighting while power just continues to accrue at the top 1%, power and money. I mean, it's really stupid that we keep fighting with each other instead of changing things so the voice of people gets into it. And this is also a trend that's happening all across the world is that citizen councils are happening. And so it's not just an idea anymore. It's the new phase of democracy. It's the 21st century democracy. That's what we need is a 21st century democracy. I mean, it worked probably back when we had 13 colonies to have your representative, you know, representing you. But Mm. now that it's so corporatized and and it's become such a such a mess that it's really the special interests that are running the government people feel completely left out and so what we need to do is things like citizens council so that that's been happening all across the world from uh washington state to australia Melbourne, Australia. In Melbourne, Australia, they said to the people, they gathered a citizens council together. So the difference between a citizens assembly and a council is the number of people involved. An assembly is usually 50 to 100 people, a council is closer to 20. And so they put together a council of 20 citizens that were randomly selected and said, we need help with our deficits. I mean, can you even imagine a town in America doing that with their citizens? I cannot. And I'm not sure I think, depending well, just, on what the, who the random 20 people are, I'm not sure they would have the expertise. But anyway, yeah. Yeah. Well, they did, actually, because there were some people, and they were also given a lot of knowledge and stuff. But it was mostly creative, you know, thinking, like, how can we bring in new funds as well? It wasn't just how do we cut down on things. And they did a really great job. Most of their recommendations were endorsed. And it was really exciting for the people, too. One person came and said, well, I can only come for a day because I have a vacation plan. But he was so excited, he gave up his vacation. Because Mm. people are really anxious and excited about the idea of being a participant in their democracy instead of just a consumer. I mean, mm. I'm sure you okay, can- Is that true though? Here's And here's why. So what, like we're, we're yeah. a group that travels the country and talks about politics with people, right? We do it online, oh. we do it in person, we hold events where, you know, we're the, right. we're the voting, we're the like voting people, you know, a lot of people's right. world. Right. I, I will tell you, most people I meet, Ruth, they're like, oh my gosh, I don't want to talk about politics. Oh, right. I'm not interested in this stuff. It's right. so complicated. And part of it is they don't like the bickering and the fighting, but also they're like, it's super boring, really actually very technical. Like when you actually spend time with a congressperson or their staff or something on on, yeah. on what they're actually having to figure out, you know, with with policy that's being passed and what's the meaning of words that are going to be litigated in a court... Like people are like, oh my gosh, I I want less to do with that stuff. Right. What makes you think? What makes you think that uh, that people really do want to spend time at a citizens council, taking on burdens and having to be briefed up on this stuff, as opposed to you know, I don't know, playing guitar or going to a, watching a, athletes perform their jobs in a sporting event or something? What? Why do you think yes, people really levels. do want to do this? Yeah. So there's two different levels of thinking about this. Like the, the one I described in Austria, they're not they're not concerned with the technical, they're concerned with the heart of the matter, right? And everybody's concerned with the heart of the matter. 
you know, they're concerned with how these immigrants are going to be treated. And everyone has needs, unfulfilled needs, mostly in this country, that they would love to have addressed. So that's the conversation. It's not the conversation. So who, do, so who does the technical work then? So like if someone says, look, we want to make sure, you know, like in this in this case, immigrants have a job or have access to a job, who then puts together the actual protocols and process for all that stuff? So they have an implementation. Over the years, they developed an implementation uh, system. So mm -hmm. there's an, a board that actually takes it and implements the suggestions of the council. Mm -hmm. So they, they organize these world, these world cafes where people are introduced to the decisions that are made by the citizen council. And then from those world cafes, they also created these job fairs, which was really the, what was suggested from the citizen council mm -hmm. in that case. So, so how is that? So talk about how that's different then than what we do, which is we pick somebody like, you know, to be your state representative for two years and to go to North Carolina where you live or Minneapolis where I live and be like they're citizens. And so they go and they're the represent. How are they not just a version of a citizens council that then is going to have open meetings and invite other people they to were, come? Like, they were at one point. Like how are we not, talk about how we're not doing that currently. Well, in the it's corrupted now. It's so expensive to run for office. Oh, I see. That mm -hmm. You have to look at what, who's going to pay you what when you decide what's going to go on. And, and there's a great example of this. In Maine, they passed a law that made all the elections that offered funding to local elections. And the yeah. result was that 80% of the people were elected through funds. And they got totally different people. They got like school teachers, firefighters, mm -hmm. people who would normally never get to run for office. And they got a much more progressive work you know, work-friendly uh, agenda out of it as well. So we hmm. know the difference between the representatives we have and the representatives we might have if spe special interests was not in there. But in the meantime, these assemblies are a way of getting people involved. And it's been so popular in Ireland that now whenever there's a fight, they kind of go, oh, let's call an assembly on this to help. Because what it does is it gives the uh, representatives sort of permission to do what should happen anyway. Yeah, so I guess I'm just smirking because I think about the politicians in the United States who won't even have an open forum. Like they won't <laughs> even have a question and answer forum. Like 90% of federal represented, uh, representatives never have an open meeting or I, uh, I was I in, I was in Washington DC on, on Monday lobbying Congress. So it's something people can do where you can just make an appointment. I was doing it through a, yeah. a a group and stuff and we went and we're meeting with three different uh four different senators and uh a representative and meeting with their staff and talking about this bill and putting it forward and th the amount of work you have to do to get one of those meetings is kind of a lot you either have to go to their office yeah, somewhere in your district yeah. or go to washington dc right. and set up a time and you get a half an hour meeting and you're and you're there pitching it the the idea that that our rep current representatives want more input or to feel uh, 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 obligated to take the ideas of a you know I don't know fifty people that come together, well it just it feels like these folks are you know a long way from that. Does it seem that way to you too? That our current system feels like it's a really long way from people taking well, some, on something. You know, it depends. It goes state by state. I mean, Washington State ha did a really good job with theirs, and they're really implementing a lot of it. They And they included indigenous people who had been previously excluded from 
you know, from involvement in the climate assembly and stuff. Yeah. Well, what, one of the things I used to be a big proponent of, and I've changed my mind on, are uh, congressional term limits, where we say to uh, people, you can serve for X number of years, you know, three terms or something like this, right. and then and then you're out. And the and the reason I've changed my mind on it uh, are two, and I'm interested in your feedback on this. One is um, we have seen in the last ten years what a lack of expertise does yeah. at the government. Right when people who don't want the government to exist, as I believe most elected Republicans approach the world as, they would like to see less of it and have it go away. Right. Uh, right. Or when people just know very little about the thing that they have control of right. is right. a problem. So you uh, have having people restart jobs that have this much influence is really a problem. So I don't like it for that reason. And the second is, it's related to it, and that is if the representative goes, the people who end up staying are, is the permanent lobbying class. And it's already this way in the United States that laws are so complex, at the, even at the city level, that, that you, the people really have to bring in experts, and then they end up bringing in experts from the industries that are most, yeah, are most related because that's where the experts are. And they're like, right, well, right. Wh what is the impact of changing out our water system to remove lead from, the, from, from our pipes? Well, then you got to bring in people that know a lot about that. And if if the, the representatives are new and inexperienced, then the power center shifts to the people who know because knowledge is power. So then you get an unelected class of people that have power. What do we do about all that, Ruth? Can you can you solve that one for? <laughs> you solve that one for us? Well, I mean, I think we we definitely we have to get money out of politics. I mean, and I everybody's said that for a long time, and we mm -hmm. recognize that, but we actually have to start doing it. Yeah. Because that, you know, if, if you could think of the one thing that would unravel everything, it's getting money out of politics. But I do think your point about experience is really is really good. I think that, you know, one of the th reasons Joe Biden has been so successful is he's been there forever, you know. <laughs> and so he knows kind of how, yeah. how to pull right. the strings and how to make stuff happen. Yeah. How, In some how ways, works. I think mm -hmm. he's a perfect man for this time, which is such a difficult time where, you know, everybody, it feels like we're on the edge of, unraveling entirely. And so I do think that, ex, you know, expertise absolutely matters. And I don't think term limits is so important as having some kind of responsibility. I mean, it, we should be able to take people, you know, people should have some ethical standards, which brings me to the, some of the, one of the points in the last chapter of my book, which is we really need a spiritual renaissance where we go back to talking about our values, our shared values, and what we want our country to look like. I've been doing book readings. In my last book reading, we had a conversation and they said, we want to start, go back to talking about our values mm -hmm. and, and start from there. And, I, and I was, there was a gentleman in there who was a minister, and I said, these conversations should be happening in the churches too, I think. Yeah. You know, the, that this is a really good place to begin because I think that we share value a lot more values than we think we share. And and we don't have to take them into the weeds. We have to start with our points of agreement on these mm -hmm. deep fundamental things. I don't want to sound like a like a downer on this one, but um, <laughs> no, it's all right. I, I have this I have a very good friend uh, who lives mm. in another state and we banter back and forth all the time where we've known right. each other a very long time. We would consider each other very close friends. We disagree on politics 
at a fundamental level. I mean, but he's going to stay at my house when he when he comes, and we're uh-huh. we're we're texting back and forth all the time. On a values level, he and I agree. We both believe honesty matters. We believe truth matters. We believe that kindness matters. We believe that integrity matters. And yet, <laughs> he supports Trump and he supports, uh, and he feels that that's representing all of it and that all the people who think the way that my political side thinks, they're the liars, they're the scoundrels. Right, right. It just feels like values, yeah. expi- like the values agreement goes away as soon as you talk about implementing any of these things. That the actual putting it in place is where the trouble comes, right? Like we say, hey, we want to include everyone. And we want, you know, we want to have it do it in a fair way. There's our value. What we mean by fairness or how you play it out. How do we get, what if you outsource the actuality of putting it into place, into, into action to others, how do you make sure that the values that are being implemented are implemented in an actual way that makes a difference where the value is being upheld? You, you see what I'm getting at? Yeah, I mean, you do have to get to a level of, agreement on what how that would manifest to some extent i mean in the example i gave you in the immigrants that doesn't mean you go to the immigrants and say you know go back to your own country yeah i mean mean, you know so right Right, as i as we talk about regularly this friend of mine and i yeah so i mean that's an interesting question like how do you get how do you get to a level of authenticity where the conversation really touches on, well, isn't that cruel to send these people back to their country who are like, you know, ha- maybe at risk of death and stuff? I mean, mm-hmm. is, is does that really f- match with your values? And so you have to get to these places where you're, you're you know, talking about the difficult, these difficult points of disagreement too. Yeah, yeah, that's but right. That's right in a safe space where you're having civil discourse. And, and it's not that we'll, ev- we'll all agree on everything, ever. Right. I mean, and there'll and they'll be outliers always, but I think the vast majority of us agree a lot more than we think. If, yeah. we, if, we, if we get away from the political grandstanding and get to a more authentic level, that's, that's what I'm suggesting, that these conversations take you to a more authentic level where you have a chance to talk to your friend and say, well, how does that work if you send these people back and they might die and you think of yourself as a compassionate person, you care about these people, you know, how do you, how do you square those things? I mean, the questions, the, the conversations that are difficult to have are what we need to have. That's yeah. right. And, and, and it seems like we, there's a lack of trust in each other that, if people who think differently, and look, I feel this way, like we do voting stuff and we're going to be out making sure that, you know, Republicans uh, have to sit out having control of the presidency for another another number of terms because they've, you know, by what they did, I think what Donald Trump means that they just lost the right to, to have somebody represent them anymore. They just sit in the corner and think about this for a while. Yeah. So, I mean, I do not trust anybody who can make it through the Republican uh, primary season to be the president of the United States. That's where I currently am. Maybe I'll be proved wrong and I'll say, oh, somebody no, made it through. I, I, I agree with you. So, uh, <laughs> so trust feels like, I, mean, I know we only have a you know minute or so two left here, but trust feels like a big part of a democracy. Like we have to be able yeah, to trust that even the people who think sure. differently than us are not people we have to be afraid of. 
But boy, I feel like we live in a country where we're afraid of each other, not just that we disagree with each other. Do, do you think right. there's anything to that or how do you think about that? Absolutely. Things? I mean, one of the things that my group really wanted us to talk about is violence, gun violence yeah. and stuff. It's like we, we have to go from having, having gun violence to civil discourse. I mean, and that can be a long journey. You know, it's not, it's not going to happen overnight. And, but I think the trust can be reignited by coming together and talking. That's, why, that's another reason why it's so important. It's not just that we have to come together and agree, but we have to come together and, and, and reignite that idea that we're, we're, yeah. we care about each other and we're, we care about meeting each other's needs. Fundamentally, that's, that's the thing that we need to do is that we need to meet each other's needs. Because there's a lot of research out there that shows that if you can meet somebody's needs, you can end a war. Let's, you know, that's what Marshall McLuhan yeah. did with his nonviolent communication work. And I think that's the fundamental thing is like, what, what, do the, what does the rural voter really need underneath yes. all of this that's not being addressed and how can we address that in a way that will make him or her feel included in our country again no. yeah and, and we really do live in a world where people on both sides of the political spectrum believe that people on the other side want to do them harm or wrong or want them right. to be eliminated all of our war language fight language take right. the country back right. language right. like right. they have it we're going to take it and then I don't know. We just, we're, we're in a, it feels like we're in a place where the fear level of each other is so high. Um, yes. As, a, as yes. an event where a, a presenter, she said, look, we, um, we can live in a world where it's us and them, whoever the them is in your world, right? As right. long as it's an, an and world we can live in. Difference matters. We're not all the same. So we can be us and them. Right. Maybe even a world us versus them. Maybe we could be competing for best ideas and stuff, right? And we can compare and contrast. There can be some competition and some angst, but we can't live in a world if it's us or them. And it feels like we've moved a long way from us and to us versus to us or. And That's if really them, true. then we are out. Like, and man, I just feel like that. It, it, that hasn't been as mainstreamed in my lifetime as it feels like it is right now. And it really does just feel incredibly, incredibly powerful. So if people want to keep up with you and the other work that you do, in addition to, to buying your book, Igniting a Bold New Democracy, how can they stay in touch with you? Um, RuthBackstrom.com. My website there is, is the way to connect with me. And and they can find you on social media and those places yeah, and all the rest right. of that they stuff can, too. Yeah, great. that's right. They can find me on Facebook. and. Yeah. Um, all yeah. those sites too, yeah. Well, Ruth, thank you for all of this work. Thanks for your good good thinking on all this and for being a voice of um, a common good democracy in the world. It really... Well, thank I hope you. You're right. I hope you're right about all this. And I hope, I hope your vision of the future is what our grandchildren can live in because that would be a much better world. Well, it's only that way if, if we create it, right? Isn't that true? Isn't that true? No one's going to make this world. I mean, you look around, you're like, I don't know. It's probably us. We probably have to do our own stuff and get busy. Uh, yeah. All right, Ruth, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much, too. It's great talking to you.